0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm James Carlton and welcome to God Forbid. Well, the great writer André Gide said, Art is a collaboration between God and the artist. And the less the artist does, the better. Well, maybe. But today on the panel, we have two fine artists in every sense. And for the next hour, the more they say, the better. Because the first is one of Australia's foremost sculptors and contemporary artists, Lindy Lee. Travel to Europe, Asia, America, plus all around Australia, and you'll see her work exhibited in great galleries. So stay right where you are for the next hour, and you'll find out how and why she does it. Lindy Lee, welcome to God Forbid thank you my pleasure i should also say a mid-career as a professional artist you completed your phd in fine art at the university of new south wales you've also lectured in visual arts at the university of sydney and been a trustee at the art gallery of new south wales and i want to find out all about your story but we also must go to our next guest on the panel rod pattenden he too is an artist And uh, as per that quote from Gide, the artist collaborates with God and the less the artist does, the better. Well, I presume he's okay with that because he's also Reverend Rod, minister at Adamstown Uniting Church in Newcastle, New South Wales. He's also an art historian who's written and lectured internationally on the connection between spirituality and the arts. For nearly a decade, he was chair of the prestigious Blake Prize for Religious Art, Reverend Dr. Rod Pattenden. Welcome to God Forbid. No, good to be with you. And with you. And a question for both of you. You first, Rod. What is this thing we call art? It's always been around, and I reckon it'll probably be around long after we are.
2: Well, art suffers underneath uh, a great deal of expectation, and uh, I think probably it's probably often better to talk about playfulness and innovation and improvisation Every human being has the capacity to uh, play with uh, things and ultimately to play with life. So it could be as as simple or as profound contained in that word art. It it involves this capacity to create a life as much as it might be simply to create an object out of clay or paint. It's one of those innate characteristics uh, that all humans have it makes us utterly human, able to fail beautifully and eloquently and to make up life as we go. So the word art can be what a bit loaded like the word religion
1: can be. What, what you mean when you say art or God or religion may not be what the person you are talking to hears.
2: Well, we could probably suffer under categories of specialty. Um, I guess in my answer, I'm trying to democratise or or recognise that we all have this capacity to create. Um, It's one of the most wonderful things about being human. I think uh, as children grow, they learn to play, uh, play in the spaces of the absence of their mother and father and to create culture and and a space of habitation. I think um, it's such a fundamental thing to sing and to move and to rock and to make marks. It's, it's part of the eloquence of being human. So I, I love this idea that art is something that everybody can do, but perhaps artists are, are given the space and the opportunity to follow this as a calling or, or a vocation or, or have that kind of specialty knowledge which inspires the rest of us. But I don't want to rob everyone of that opportunity to create or be a creature who creates. And Lindy
1: Lee, your take on art, boundaryless, as Rod suggests?
0: Yeah, I love what Rod said, suggested, um, the eloquence of being human. For me, art is the expression of everything that's intangible and invisible in our lives that, that makes our lives. And art is the only vehicle that we humans have to express that which is invisible inside of us, um, to bring it into the world. And when I say that it's, you know, it, it is the expression of everything that's invisible inside of us, anything that can be said about a person cannot sum them up. We always exceed description, you know, our very lives. Art comes from that place where... All of these invisible experiences that make who we are and transform who we are from moment to moment, art is is the vehicle through which we can make manifest these experiences. And there's a commonality of experience as well, like grief and joy and connection and, and sorrow. And artworks allow that um, communion, if you
1: like. And we all have different paths through our joy and grief. Um... Your parents fled China when the communists took over. You were born in Brisbane. How did that shape your childhood and in turn now your art?
0: I think it was everything. I'm, I was born in the, in the 50s and so when I was growing up, uh, particularly in the 60s, I was the only Chinese face in the schoolyard. Uh, the backdrop of that was also the White Australia policy. And I'd kind of like it to be noted that the White Australia policy didn't end until I was 21 years old, so it's that contemporary within our, you know, within our uh, understanding of Australian culture. It, it's not that far away. So when I was growing up, there was this feeling of extreme uh, division inside me, and and this question was born even from when I was a little baby girl. This little furrow in the middle of my brows was just questioning who and what I was because I was different from everybody else in the schoolyard. Those experiences set you on a trajectory for the rest of your life.
1: And like so many migrant parents, yours, in my um, opinion, and I mean no disrespect and forgive me for saying it, in my opinion, they made the terrible mistake of, uh, an understandable mistake of, because they wanted so hard to make a new life, of not raising you with the Chinese language as a mother tongue, uh, so you, you 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 can't speak Chinese.
0: No, that's true.
1: They wanted to give you only English because they thought that would make you a better Australian.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And that meant you were the only Chinese kid in the school who were told you're not Australian, <laughs> and yet you couldn't speak Chinese. Yeah,
0: exactly. And the reverse <laughs> would happen. I'd go to the Chinese club. Uh, in Orkinflower in Brisbane, you know, and go and have um, Chinese meals there, and and I wouldn't feel like anybody else there, even though I looked like everybody else, because I couldn't speak Cantonese. And this is this is such a common experience, you know, particularly of my generation. No matter if you were Greek, Chinese, Lithuanian, whatever, um, the sentiment was that you should forget where you came from and just speak English, and that was regarded as the norm. But of course, what happens then is that what you internalise is that there must be something wrong with you, because that sort of non-acceptance of your difference and your ancestry also is a signal to say that something is unacceptable about
1: you. So what does that mean today for you as an artist?
0: I used to teach um, graduate students at University of Sydney, And a lot of those students, you know, they they would feel their difference because of gender, because of ancestry, because of race, whatever. But I used to say that although it's very painful, we're in this really privileged position because we have to straddle multiple viewpoints because we are sort of in some ways other and it allows us to grow a perspective which is broader and deeper and that is such rich content and even the pain of it is such rich content for being an artist. So it's a great gift in one way.
1: And Reverend Dr. Rod Pattenden, if you don't mind me asking, what about your childhood? You're clearly a man who's attracted to um, expression, to uh, spirituality, to sharing vulnerability, to the luminous. Were these feelings, emotions and sensitivities that were uh, allowed for you as a child?
2: Oh no! I, I remember my childhood, which was a fairly typical Australian upbringing, uh, middle class background of being absolutely boring, banal, uh, utilitarian. <laughs> All kids get bored. That's not unique for you, Rod. Oh well, well no, this was like a congenital starvation for for what I realised was the role of the imagination. Um, actually learning to see otherwise, to think around and to begin to understand that I'd been cultured and my parents had a history and that there were other, actually other ways of thinking and engaging and, and being excited by um, meeting people from other cultures and just learning that, you know, the imagination is a wonderful capacity to see outside your own frameworks and and for me one of my sense of otherness is that as I grew older into midlife I realized that uh, I was gay and that part of my own um, history was 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 this dysfunctional sense of difference. And so I wonder just listening to Lindy whether, some artists are actually enhanced by having that kind of marginal experience, being able to see ordinary things from a different perspective and to use that space of being somewhat a little bit different, having a different view uh, is actually an entree into seeing that art and creativity uh, provide a set of tools yeah, to see things differently and more expansively. Um, I think, you know, the most irritating thing I find about living in Australia is, is its capacities to settle with the status quo. And that's why we we often find the work of artists and imaginaries um, very disruptive. Um, They want more, they want more out of life. Well, Lindy,
1: what's your re- response to Rod? But I might put it this way as well. Aren't all of us different? You don't have to be gay or Chinese to be different. Every single person is different in their own way. And every person can therefore have a marginal element of their life that they can bring to their inherent creativity, whatever that may be.
0: Yeah, I think that um, you're right. It, it's Being human is, is to live with a wondrous paradox, we are the same as everybody but we are also individually very different. We're the same in the sense that we are born, we have joy and a whole range of experiences um, that are, can be quite difficult and painful and they shape us in all different and unique ways. And yet these experiences are also experiences that all of us share. When I was little, uh, when I was in fourth grade, um, there was this little boy called Johnny who was misbehaving really badly And the teacher, Mrs. Bridges, threw a piece of chalk at him and said, Johnny, it's 12.30. Don't you realise that this second will never come again, ever? Well, my jaw dropped because she was right. This moment will never come again. So I'm bringing this up because I think that humans are paradoxical. We are historical and unhistorical. Historical in the sense that it's taken all of history, it's taken all of the meanderings and the windings and the constructions and the relationships of the universe to bring every single being into the world. So you're you're the product of history, but we're also unhistorical at the same time in the sense that this moment of existence has never had come before and it will never happen again. So it's kind of like that paradox between being born out of everything and being totally unique simultaneously. So that in itself gives us uh, some sense of shared commonality and also uniqueness within the being of what we are as individuals. So in that space, anybody can be an artist because what you're using is the content of your life. And it doesn't have to be an elitist thing or or a specialised thing. However, I do have to say that to be an artist, you have to be driven. And, and that, you know, because nobody is going to force you to get up every morning to go to your studio and work. You just have to do it um, because you have to.
1: We're with Dr Lindy Lee, a contemporary artist exhibited around the world, you've likely seen her sculptures if you've walked widely around the streets of Australian cities. Also Reverend Dr Rod Pattenden, a fine artist too, a writer, historian, educator and uniting church minister at Adamstown in Newcastle, New South Wales. It's God forbid. Throughout time and history, we've heaped praise onto the great and creative minds among us. But what makes someone highly creative, super creative? Is it acquired? Are you born with it? Are there common traits or characteristics? Well, why don't we look at this scientifically in the lab? Professor Nancy Andreessen is chair of psychiatry. She's a neuroscientist as well at the University of Iowa, and she's speaking with Lynn Malcolm.
3: Creative people tend to be very curious about all kinds of things. They tend to be adventuresome. They tend to be a little bit iconoclastic, which is related to being original, of course. Sometimes they just perceive things in a totally new and different way that other people are simply not able to see. I mean, they see things that are true and real and, yet, and that are obvious to them, and they aren't obvious to other people. Another characteristic is that they tend to be obsessional, not in a diseased way, but they start to chew on a problem and that might be writing a story it might be a math problem it might be a computer science problem might be creating a painting and they get into it so deeply that they may end up working all night on what they're doing michelangelo is a, is a wonderful example because he worked you know 16 20 hours a day when he was working on something which was nearly his entire life and when he was an older man he had such an intense drive to continue creating that he rigged up an apparatus that he wore on his head that consisted of candles so that he could wield his hammer and chisel all night long creating statues.
0: So now with our latest knowledge about the brain and its plasticity, its ability to change and reform, can we build
3: better brains? Well Again, this is one of the most fundamental and important questions we can ask. A lot of people think that creativity is something that you do, say, between 20 and 40 or 50. And a lot of people think that creativity is limited to these highly creative people that we've been talking about. But, in fact, all of us have the capacity to be creative Life is not over at 50. People in their 50s, 60s, and 70s can do things to exercise their brains that will both make them stronger intellectually, but also make them more creative. can be things as simple as a cooking club or a book club or a wine tasting club or more complex as a uh, problem-solving club or an adventure club or whatever. In other words, it's never too late to do something in an interesting, fun, and original way.
1: And that's Professor Nancy Andreessen speaking with Lynn Malcolm on RN's All in the Mind. Back in 2012, we'll put a link to their full conversation on the God Forbid website. Well, that's a very hard science uh, look at the brain and creativity, Lindy Lee. What's your uh, artistic reaction (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know, quite similar. I think that the most important thing to, uh, most important qualities to maintain if you want to be an artist is, is openness and curiosity and also the willingness to follow something through. And that obsessive quality is kind of essential. So the, the openness, I really love the Gide quote that you started the program with. Can you repeat that?
1: <laughs> with pleasure. He's a Nobel Prize winner for literature, a Frenchman, and he said, art is a collaboration between God and the artist and the less the artist does, the better.
0: So I love that quote because actually that's the essence of it, whether you believe in God or not. It's, it's, for me, you know, it's not a question of God, but everything that is greater than me, and I can't name it because I think that is it's unnameable.
1: So tell me how spirituality shapes your work and then tell me how all those brilliant atheist artists can still do extraordinary work without spirituality, seemingly.
0: All right, so this is this is a huge question. I think that artists are best when when we are curious. well, people are best when we are curious and and non-judgmental, all right we you know not in that sort of uh, scathing, critical way, but rather kind of curious and open to discovery. And in that mindset, you can't know what you're going to do in that sense where, you know, I can't, you know, it's not fruitful for me anyway, my practice, if I know exactly what's going to happen and how to do it, because I'm just going through everything that Lindy knows. And that's boring. The moment that Lindy drops the conceit of knowing and enters into that space of unknowing, just welcoming anything and just being curious about how the rain fell on this, how the ink splat did that, how the perforations caught the light, and just being allowing myself to be entranced rather than trying to control. So that, that quote is about sort of relinquishing your own ego control and entering into a bigger space. So you don't have to have God there, but you do have to have spirit there. And I think that even atheists have spirit. And as I, as I like to say, you know, spirit is, is just all the intangible things and experiences that make up every human soul. And you can talk about, uh, it in religious terms or non religious terms. But for me, it's the same thing, whatever you name it. It is that curious space of not knowing and willingness to enter into something that's bigger than what you are and have that conversation.
1: I want to turn to Rod Pattenden now. Let me uh, ask you. I mean, we heard from that world-class neuroscientist in the piece, the psychiatrist, a a scientific expert. She says there are hyper-creative people, but she said every living person has the power to create, no matter how old or young, no matter how gifted or you know, ungifted, for want of a better term. For you, there must be Christian
2: overtones to that. I've lived my life between these two worlds of art practice and organised religion, and at times it's been an intolerable tension between order and chaos, between being correct and allowing space for exploration. And I think I've resolved that in my own life and person, it's got to allow for some exploration and mistake-making and playfulness to fully inhabit um, the the possibilities of of what it is to be human as a person. So I, I do try quite consciously to be informed by what I've learned from the arts when I pick up my role as a minister or a priest, And I try to model this open-ended practice of modeling some sense of vulnerability in the face of the complexity of being human. That seems to me uh, a really good description of the role of of faith or religion, or certainly the word spirituality, is to enculture a sense of holy curiosity and wonder towards life. Life is too complex and, and mystical and beyond comprehension. And to be truly human, I think, is, is to be humble, to realize that you're a creature. You're not in control of creation, but to have that more um, humble sense of walking gently across the surface of this planet in some deep reverence uh, towards what is what might be possible in terms of human habitation. But to be truly Christian and remembering that not all religions
1: are the same, to be truly Christian, which puts an emphasis more on the word, and you're a man who's into images and pictures and paintings, mm-hmm. isn't there a potential there for a mismatch in your duties, both as a Christian and artist?
2: Yeah, Christianity has a long and conflicted history with images. There's been times at which images have been burned and destroyed and other times where images have been you know, given their full gamut so we do have a have a set of tensions within uh, within Christianity, and particularly in Australia, where there's a very strong fundamentalist. Uh, uh, you know that is the word comes first, and the word defines it, controls, and I think it extinguishes. But isn't
1: that the rule? You know better than me. Isn't that what the rule of Christianity is?
2: No. <laughs> No, we would say that that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. That is, he he inhabited, he he became human. The incarnation is all about becoming flesh and enfleshing human experience with the with the divine, and that can't be corralled by by doctrine or words. So so it comes, you know, into the world of the individual practitioner is that you're left with this question about well how you live your life, which is an open-ended invitation to also incarnate or be enfleshed in, in the conditions you're given. That is to say experience, experiential. Yes, there's, a, there's an experience. Uh, being human is both an intellectual, emotional experience. And so to fully inhabit your life, um, you do need the arts and, and to live with this sense of holy curiosity. I don't think Christianity gives people certainty. It doesn't pull you out of life. It doesn't allow you to extract your intellect in some state of uh, perfection. You you still have to deal with your frail humanity. So um, as a result of my commitment to holy curiosity, I do do find myself at odds from time to time with people who, who see the religious tradition and, there, and all religions have their fundamentalism, that uh, they believe that, you know, the truth is found in, in, in rational statements and words only. That's idolatry. That, that goes against um, most religious traditions, in fact, who hold, hold open this tension around holy curiosity
1: Hmm. Well, it's only fair, Dr. Lindy Lee. After I've applied my simplistic understanding of Christianity to Rod, that I apply my simplistic understanding of your Buddhism to you, namely that, particularly with your Zen Buddhism, there's this idea that everything is impermanent, uh, and if you meditate, uh, uh, you know, into the nothingness, you'll 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 realise this: that the vast complexity of everything will be nothing and impermanent. But I notice with your work, you you literally have a foundry and you work with metal. And well, what could be more permanent than metal? Your stuff lasts for thousands of years. You mm. know, yeah. It's not on. It's not on bark, which is going to rot in a, in six months. Yeah. Have, have I touched it, on something, or is that a coincidence?
0: Um, no, no. But I, I think that uh, first up, even mountains are impermanent. Mount Everest uh, is the highest mountain in the world, and eventually, over time, even if it takes 10,000 million years, um, and it will flatten out, everything is impermanent.
1: Even, even your art.
0: Even, and even my art will be impermanent. Look, I- anything can happen. So I've got to work on the forecourt of the MCA in Sydney at the moment. There could be a huge thunderstorm, and that could be the lightning rod, and it could you know it could incinerate.
1: You don't have to hypothesise. You had a beautiful installation of brass works on the footpath in Chinatown, Sydney, and they built the light rail and one of the subcontractors covered it with um, bitumen.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: So it wasn't wasn't that the brass was going to erode away in 5,000 years because of the weathering once Mount Everest had become a river. That's right. A subcontractor just got a couple of blokes to put a tonne of bitumen on it.
0: yeah that's right. sort of sort of didn't notice that there was an artwork and then poured, yeah, bitumen. Um, yeah, so everything actually is 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 everything changes is another way of saying that things are impermanent. Everything changes. And you can't stop that, and that's the first universal principle of the world of the universe. Everything is subject to change.
1: Well, on our end, God forbid, we'll turn to another faith traditional together, Hinduism and dance, which is the art form that, amongst others, sustains that ancient faith so well. We are with Dr. Lindy Lee, a contemporary artist exhibited around the world and around Australia, as you've heard, and Reverend Dr. Rod Patton, and also a fine artist, writer, historian and uniting church minister at Adamstown in Newcastle, New South Wales. I'm James Carlton. It's God forbid. Ananda Vali is an internationally acclaimed dancer and choreographer currently based in Sydney. And on top of that, she's also had a half-century career in dance herself. She started learning classical Indian dance when she was only seven from the great masters. And for Ananda Vali, the Hindu classical texts and epics to this day are inseparable from her practice. Ananda Vali tells Rachel Korn about her production Earth and Fire with two heroines, Sita and Draupadi, from the Hindu epics Ramayana and the Mahabharata.
4: I've always dealt with very strong female themes within my company and within the choreography I do for different themes. And one of our strongest productions was Earth and Fire, in which I portrayed Sita and Draupadi using the elements of their birth. See, Sita was born from the earth. She was found by her father, Janaka, who adopted her, in the earth. Draupadi was born as a fully grown woman from the fire. Sita was strong, patient, tolerant and forgiving like the earth. Draupadi was scathing, illuminating, revengeful and destructive like the fire. They were both very strong women in their own ways but they both had very unfulfilled lives within the epics. Bali, how do you create that drama on stage? Is it something like substituting dance moves for the words of the text? I think the magic of Indian classical dance and Bharatanatyam is that it's an art form that has evolved over the centuries but still maintained its magic. Its structure has been so perfect, as given to us by... The Lord of Dance and Bharata Muni, that it has immense amount of tools to work with. So when people say expression is not just facial expression, it's body expression. But when I take a theme like Sita and Draupati, it's not just Bharatanatyam that I bring into play. I bring in lighting, I bring in music, I bring, bring in very specific choreography. Because as as you yourself said, I mean, how do you bring two epics and Two of the pivotal women within one evening and within one and a half hours. So you bring many things into play. But at the end of the day, it's a basic tool that is what we use. And that is the Hindu mythology, of the epics. I mean, the Hindu pantheon of gods are so vast and so interwoven into our lives. I don't think any art form in any part of the world has what we have in Hinduism to play off. Well I
0: have to confess to loving Bollywood movies and uh, I go specifically for the dance numbers which are so integral to the story. It's almost as if the dancing, the shoulder movements, the, the facial expressions are all part of the romance and of the conflict and of the stories being told.
4: See there again, a lot of what they call the Bollywood choreography originated with the folk dances of India. And in many ways, the folk dances of India probably originated before the classical dance format came into play. So what we're seeing in the Bollywood movies is a kind of watered-down version, perhaps. I think a bit of a mix of the East and the West, <laughs> with a lot of the West, Western um, body movements or Michael Jackson body movements coming in. But the beats is mean, basically, at the end of the day, the Bollywood movies, the body moves to the rhythm. And the rhythm hasn't changed. The Bollywood movie rhythms are the original rhythms.
1: And that is renowned dancer Ananda Bali speaking with Rachel Con for The Spirit of Things back in 2006. We'll put a link to their full conversation on the God Forbid website. Well, Reverend Dr. Rod Pattenden, this Hindu tradition for thousands of years of moving the body and the face as an expression of humanity, of the self, of the connection with the divine, uh, as distinct from an intellectual connection. This is something that's very important to you, but in a, I suppose, a Western way. Explain your journey in this respect.
2: Well, yes, my experience of Christianity is uh, very disembodied. There's a great deal of suspicion around pleasure and the actions of the body, don't do anything that might make you sin is, is, is the boundary. But for, for me in midlife, I, I realized I was getting depressed and becoming very serious. And I started doing a practice called interplay, which is based in uh, simple theater forms, telling stories, uh, breathing, uh, moving, doing improvised movement with, uh, with partners and in, in a group and, and singing. That's really just, uh, learning to be more alive as a as a human body and it it actually had a profound influence on on my life I realized how serious I was and how boring and intellectual it it woke me up to actually enjoy myself and to deal with uh, pleasure and sensuality and to realize that my skin is a source of intelligence and that um, being in the world and being with others was an important part of um What makes me whole? So I think I shifted from being suspicious and uncertain in my body to actually being much more at home. And my goodness, what what a relief to feel at home in the body you have. So I think it saved me.
1: Maybe on that note, we should uh, take a break before our next section. We're with Dr. Lindy Lee and we're with Reverend Dr. Rod Pattenden as well. It is, God forbid, we're looking at spirituality, art and identity up next. Lisa Hilly is an award-winning multimedia artist who explores the themes of identity, culture and racism in her works. She's a Pacific Melanesian woman with some Finnish heritage, and she chats with RN's Namila Benson, starting with how she sees her role as an artist.
5: Well, an artist is someone who reflects back the world the way that they see it, and the way that we do that is we use our hands, our hearts, and our minds, all three together. And that's not an easy thing to do. You want to communicate that visually, whether you want to communicate that through sound. Essentially, it's about communicating an idea or a concept or a feeling or a problem. Black women and their bodies feature prominently in your work and uh, that includes your project Sisterhood Lifeline. With Sisterhood Lifeline, what did you want to address through this exhibition which also toured overseas? Yeah, so that work came out of a, a very uh, acute experience of working in a museum and it was essentially a creative response to institutional racism and so when i first started working at the museum um i had a hard time trying to find where where i sort of fit in and you know i was working you know in this colonial institution and just being very observant of like behaviors and power and ego kind of moves and but also being completely confronted with, like, the root of racism in, like, a lot of these historical records. Like, I remember reading, like, these notes, historical notes about the way that sort of early collectors had described, like, Papua New Guinean people, Pacific people. Like, they were just awful. Like, it was so, like, so shocking. But in terms of, like, making the work, it was more about finding the solidarity between other women of colour in the museum but also outside of the museum because when you're working in an institutional space, your body is either invisible or very visible. So you're either invisible in terms of like you become excluded from conversations that concern you or your culture and your people who have been historically represented by the museum publicly, not always in a good way, or you're so visible that you shrink yourself or you try and kind of like – blend in so that, you know, you don't kind of like make um, people who aren't people of colour kind of uh, anxious <laughs> <laughs> because, like, I knew that when I was going in that space, you know, as a Papua New Guinea woman who was educated and I had cultural mm. knowledge, I was a threat. And um, Sisterhood Lifeline was just a way to show how difficult the working in in, in this institution can be on our bodies and on our minds and our spirits.
1: That's award-winning artist Lisa Hilly there, speaking with RN's Namilia Benson for the Art Show in 2020. We'll put a link to the full conversation on our website. Well, uh, uh, Dr Lindy Lee, damaging to the uh, hearts, minds and spirits, can art interacting with the art industry be like that that's what you have to do isn't it you're not just making art by yourself in your room you're interacting with a business
0: yeah of course you are I mean it's it's there are different layers and functions within the art world so an artist you know is the primary producer but then the primary producer has to go out and find a way to sustain that production and usually that can be by selling stuff or teaching as I did for a long time
1: the idea of commercialising your identity is a very confronting thought.
0: Well, I think I'm at a very um, lucky place in my career at the moment where I can actually make a living from being an artist, and that's, but that's after four decades. So, I mean, I always used to say to my students, if you want to be an artist, then you have to agree that you will just be a cleaner or a barista as your day job for the rest of your life. That's a possibility. And as long as you're willing to do that, um, then it can work for you. Um, So there are enormous sacrifices that you have to make. But sometimes upon occasion, you do begin to sell work and you can sustain your life that way. And that's fantastic because there is true liberation. I mean, now I've got the opportunity to make these really quite monumental works, and that's because – there are people in this world who are willing to fund that. So I'm very happy about that. But also getting back to just in terms of the identity and what uh, Lisa was saying is that I used to experience, you know, when I first began back in the 1980s, a kind of condescension, you know, oh, we didn't realise you were Chinese. Well, never mind, you can be an honorary white. It was that kind of attitude. So I just wanted to put that there because that's sort of relevant I think, to the quote that um, that you played at the beginning of this segment.
1: Hmm. Well, you can either be an honorary white or your work can be assigned to ethnic community art. They're the two choices.
0: Or the choice also is to be able to have the freedom to dance between those things. Because one of the conditions that I've lived with for a very, very long time, but kind of feel free from it, is that I am not Chinese enough to be Chinese, and I am certainly not white enough to be a European-Australian. So that caused a very deep division in, in my soul. Um, but it's the healing of that division which has been my life's work, and that healing has come through the work that I do. Because in making art, it allows the questions to arise. You know, when dealing with a materiality, I like to say that a, ma- a material, you know, like even the color, color red, for instance, is a material, and it's rich because of association. When we see the colour red, it's not just the immediacy of the colour, but it's also the fact that it reminds us of the the sunset that we saw um, or the red of our blood or the red of that dress that that young woman wore on the beach the other day. So Hmm. all of these things are lined with meaning.
1: When I see all that red in your work, the first thing I thought, and maybe that's just my political preoccupation i thought it was a communist reference
0: uh it's a chinese reference for sure but not communist
1: it's the chinese it's the it's the good luck it's the turning away the spirits the, the bad demons reference rather than the red soviet type thing
0: yeah so it you know red is a very traditional uh, prosperous color within chinese culture
1: as distinct from the worker's flag is deepest red, yes. Yeah, um, So, but
0: but that's exactly what I also, that's a demonstration of what I'm saying, is that, that colours have associations and meanings, which is why art becomes rich, because when we, you know, we stand in the presence of a work, even its materiality is speaking to us physically of our experiences in the
1: world, you know. But your success puts you in this tiny minority of artists that enables you, for example, to look at this piece you have outside permanently, the Art Gallery of South Australia, a 20 foot tall, six metre sculpture uh, of, uh, I don't know how I can do it justice, this masterpiece, an egg shaped it's, it looks silver, but it's actually a mirror, and that's the whole point, because it it reflects everything outside it. And it's what has what it got? Like a hundred thousand or 50, ten thousand pin pricks in it that you've all put in with your team manually?
4: How? Oh,
0: probably yeah, between eighty and hundred. <laughs> yep, all manual.
1: Well, it, it looks like a trillion, but that's your magic. So explain this work, what a massive construction effort it was. I mean, it's like building a building. And this is simply not an option available to the artist who works flipping hamburgers and then when he or she gets home at six o'clock says, I'd like to express how I feel.
0: Yeah, but this capacity now for me to make these works of art come after 40 years of experience you know at some point I just was ready to take on larger tasks because my practice has been long and I've worked diligently at it for a very long time it takes a lot of experience to understand scale and space and presence especially civic space where you've got possibly thousands of people walking past you know a piazza or whatever
1: you know how huge the responsibility is, and you don't take it lightly.
0: Well, it's a huge responsibility, um, and it's scary uh, because these these objects do cost you know just the fabrication cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, which seems crazy now that I am saying it out loud. <laughs> but I am, but but I am, but I am so lucky that the spiritual yearnings that have been growing inside of me and it maturing inside of me for more than sixty years have now found a kind of resonance and support. Um, so I have a very wonderful collaborative relationship with UAP, and that's the, the foundry. They, they fabricate all of my large works, and I use their studios and their workshops as my playground. And, you know, I'm hugely privileged to be able to do that. And, and now I'm able to make these rather large
1: works. Indeed you are. And Rod Pattenden, some will think this is the fulfilment of civilisation, that hundreds of thousands of dollars can be spent giving light to the spirituality of Lindy so others can be sustained by it. And I imagine there are others who say, I can't think of a worse waste of money.
2: Well, what I love about um, Lindy's work is she's um, a public intellectual. She's working at a scale now in her work where she's being commissioned to provide spaces in in our urban culture where people just stop and wonder, where the confines of utilitarian, you know, I'm late for my business meeting, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. All of a sudden, in, in the streetscape of Adelaide, you encounter this, what could be understood as a sacred space. I think one of the functions of spirituality is to give you a moment where you feel the rapture of being alive. And uh, certainly, in front of her works, it creates a question mark, a space, uh, a, 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 an extension of the, of the cramming of life from here to there, and under under a certain agenda. So. Um, thank heavens uh, for artists like uh, Lindy, who can provide um, these major opportunities in our culture to to remind ourselves that we are creatures of wonder. You know, thank heavens for these these people who sit on the edge and and think about and experience those tensions and find healing, and give us the rest of us uh, an opportunity to co- come along for the for the ride and to have our own imagination expanded and and it's art, it's, it's beauty, it's spirituality and it feeds back into the way we see ourselves and the lives we live. It's God forbid. The Wits End Quiz, up next.
0: Wits End.
1: Yes, it's Wits End, the God forbid quiz. As always, we begin with the buzzers. Lindy Lee, whose Buddhism is infused in her art, test your buzzer. Buddhism is an Asian religion that also has a significant following of annoying white people. Correct. Uh, And Reverend Rod Pattenden, whose Christian tradition sustains him when he gets ripped off by art dealers who won't pay him fairly for his art. Test your buzzer. For what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly grateful. And he's not grateful. That's just, he's just, he's never grateful. Question, who said this? Art is a line around your thoughts. Buddhism is an Asian religion that also has a significant following of annoying white people. I'm going to say Klimt. Correct. Klimt. Gustav Klimt. Uh, Who said this? Art is never finished, only abandoned. Was it Leonardo da Vinci or Leonardo DiCaprio? For what we are about
2: to receive, may the Lord make us truly grateful oh da vinci definitely
0: (laughs) not fair (laughs) correct
1: what religion did lisa simpson convert to mormonism judaism buddhism or she didn't convert she became an atheist what we are about to receive may the lord make us truly grateful oh i think she became an atheist no buddhist (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) next question true or false Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ is the highest-grossing religious film of all time, depending on how you define religious, grossing, or film. Buddhism is an Asian religion that also has a significant following of annoying white people.
0: Uh, I'm going to say false.
1: True. The Passion of the Christ (laughs) from from 2004 grossed over $622 million, according to what I'm reading. How
2: disappointing.
1: My goodness. You didn't like it? It's not art. Some say it was a
2: it's not art. <laughs> what is it, a documentary? Oh, it's driven by a very fundamentalist belief in in, in um yeah, uh the in yeah. Gross. Oh well
0: <laughs> Gross gross in gross in every word, yep. In every meaning.
2: oh. Well.
1: I'm not going to watch the sequel with you, that's for sure. Next question. Which Hindu deity is considered the lord of the dance? Is it Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Nataraja or Michael Flatley? For what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly grateful. Oh, obviously <laughs> Shiva. Correct. Correct. With many arms. Shiva, the dancing god of destruction. Next question. Which poet wrote the famous poem Ash Wednesday after converting to Anglicanism? English. Englishman. Buddhism is an Asian religion that also has a significant following of annoying white people.
5: Mr Elliot. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, yes, T.S. Elliot, correct. Next question. Which, uh, what religion and nationality is Fiddler on the Roof's movie director, Norman Jewison? what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly grateful. Well, my guess will be Jewish. I know you would guess that, but Norman Jewison is actually a Protestant from Canada and after uh, directing Fiddler on the Roof, he went on to direct Jesus Christ Superstar. Jewison said in an interview that he used to get teased at school for being Jewish even though he wasn't. Next question. In 1973, the National Gallery of Australia bought Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles, for $1.3 million. It was so expensive at the time, it needed to be personally approved by the Labor Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam. And he was pilloried for spending so much money, not just on art, but abstract art. People used to say, what the hell is the picture of? Do either of you remember that time? Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And you thought it was a total joke that the Prime Minister would spend so much money on a painting you couldn't even
2: do? you? I
0: thought it was wonderful. Uh,
2: absolutely wonderful purchase a brilliant uh, coup because it's now worth a huge amount of money and and considered to be one of his finest works exactly well that's the question
1: it was purchased for 1.3 million dollars if you put that 1.3 million dollars in the bank from 1973 it would be worth 13 million dollars today but what is the painting worth today the one that Gough Whitlam supposedly got ripped off on by spending 1.3 million dollars on if the national gallery of australia were to sell it which they most certainly won't what are the estimates for what they would receive for pollock's blue poles any guesses oh 90 million lindy i
0: think more than 100 million
1: well, they can't really say. It's one of those things that no one knows until it goes to auction. But uh, estimates have varied from between $100 million to three. 150 million dollars so that's uh that's quite a sound investment as a result of the national gallery's temporary closure because of uh, the pandemic it became possible to undertake an extensive conservation project on blue poles which was needed because the work has been rarely off display since its purchase in 73 and it's obviously one of the standout uh pieces in the gallery and it's oh i don't know how many millions of people have gone to the gallery to see it since then Mm. but uh Many, I would say. Several, more than several. Well, good on you, Gough.
0: <laughs> yeah, bless golf, bless golf.
1: In peace. Um, well, on that note, we, we've reached the end of God Forbid, but we thank Lindy and Rod so much for making the program what it was. Dr Lindy Lee, it's been a privilege and a pleasure.
0: Oh, it was a great pleasure for me too, mm, and, and great to catch up with Rod.
1: certainly was. Reverend Dr Rod Pattenden, thank you so much. Mm, thanks, James, and thanks, Lindy. And Dr. Lindy Lee, she's a a great contemporary artist, exhibited all around the world, but you don't have to go to North America or Europe or Asia to see her stuff, though you can, you can just as easily go around any of the great cities of Australia and see it there as well. And Reverend Dr. Rod Pattenden, he's a fine artist himself, writer, historian, educator, and a Uniting Church minister at the Adamstown Uniting Church in Newcastle, Hunter Valley, New South Wales. And with that, we've reached the end of God Forbid. You can subscribe to the podcast on the ABC Listen app. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid.